2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, I'm Howard Burton, host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to present the following Pandemic Perspectives podcast, one of a special series of 24 podcasts that, together with our Pandemic Perspectives documentary and my book Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, make up our comprehensive Pandemic Perspectives project looking at the COVID-19 crisis from a spectrum of different angles. Today's Pandemic Perspectives podcast features Lorraine Daston, Historian of Science and Director Emerita at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, and an ideal person to involve in the Pandemic Perspectives project, given her unique combination of a detailed awareness of the history of science and a longstanding determination to explore the implications of evolving scientific understanding on a broad range of key societal values as will quickly become apparent, she very much lived up to my expectations, thoughtfully highlighting a number of intriguing points that will doubtless resonate strongly with many listeners. I thought we'd begin by talking about science and morality, the overlap, the potential overlap of of science and morality, and what our recent experiences with respect to the pandemic might illustrate in this regard, if anything, perhaps nothing. And I thought I'd begin with your recent book, or at least the book that I recently had the the pleasure to read, Against Nature. So I'm just going to hold forth for a little bit. You tell me if I'm way off base. This is what I took away from this book. So my sense was you formulated a response to the question, why do human beings across a wide variety of times and places so persistently look to nature as a source of norms for human conduct. So that was my sense of the the fundamental question that you had. So first you you went on to say that norm generation, this whole idea of moving from what is to what ought or how we should be acting in a particular way, depends on a sense of order. And then you went on to say that if you're interested in order or given that order is is a... logical prerequisite for the act of generating norms, nature's an obvious place to look. And nature is replete with order of all different sorts, and you delineate various different categories of order. And then that idea combined with this notion uh, that human beings are naturally predisposed to representing things, naturally leads us to invoking nature as an exemplar for moral conduct, as it were. So that was that was my sense of the framework of what you were driving at in that book. So before I ask you a couple of questions about it, and and also as is my want in these weeks to drive back to what this means in terms of our present circumstances, is that reasonable? Is that right? Have I missed something? How would you describe that as a review of what you were Going after in this particular work.
0: Yes, that's an excellent concise summary. And I'd only add a question that I think would occur to any listener of that excellent concise summary, which is given the need for order both to underwrite moral and natural regularities, natural regularities and moral norms, and given the human propensity to represent its orders. Why just natural models as forms of representation? And it is the case that there are examples from the artificial world. One thinks, for example, of clockwork being used as a metaphor for both social and natural order. But on the whole, natural models preponderate. And I think this is still an open question, but my best hypothesis as to why that is the case is that they're both most more durable than most of the built world. And they're also more accessible so that they tend to have a currency and an availability which outstrips artificial models.
1: So that that's going to lead me directly into uh, another question. But before I get there, I had an even more basic question. So let me just ask you this because I was confused by the title. Maybe that's just me, uh, and I, I realize that uh, when one publishes a book, there are lots of people involved. There are editors, there are publishers, there are people suggesting various different things. But I was confused by the notion of, of against nature, because for me, this was an explanation or an attempt at an explanation, or at least a partial explanation for why we look to nature so often. And as you say, there are questions that are unresolved, but at least you set up a a way of being able to deal with that. When I would pick up a book entitled Against Nature, I would be thinking, perhaps naively, of something very, very different, something that would be Denying the, the relevance of nature or seeking alternatives to natural ways of doing things, or what have you do you understand my confusion yes, is that I was that in any way problematic for you? I
0: completely understand your confusion, and i I, I, I share it. Um, I regret the title it was just as you suspect an editorial imposition. Um, my original title, which perhaps is not no more felicitous than that one, but at least it was more descriptive, was the Passions of the unnatural because my Departure point for the book was how various forms of the unnatural, the monstrous, the natural catastrophe, the miraculous, were all morally tinged. And I wanted to title it The Passions of the Unnatural. But unfortunately, at least in German, and this book first appeared um, through a series of of accidents, first in German, that has associations, historical associations, which are most unfortunate and misleading about the book. And the editor understandably thought that this title would not be the most transparent for that audience. And then we chose, because we wanted a short title for a short book, a kind of translation of the unnatural. So we chose, we chose a short title, which was an extremely rough approximation of the unnatural. And it became the misleading against nature. Were I to do it over again, I would have a very different title. So,
1: Okay. Well, it's a great book. I, the, the, that, in fact, that was the only problem I had with it. I'd like to move a little bit further into the positions or the, the ideas that you highlight. And again, as threatened, bring them within the context of these particular times uh, that we're facing. So it seems to me that the notion of both order and nature is somewhat knowledge dependent. The pandemic, I think, highlights that, and I have a few examples of this, but I wanted to just to bounce that off you. You have different categories of the natural that you invoke. You talk about specific natures and local natures and the law of nature, and you also clearly say these are but three of many possibilities. You don't in any way uh, imply that this is a complete taxonomy of naturality, as it were, or naturalness. But th- those are... Those are obvious categories, or at least those are suggestive categories or or revealing categories. But to me, when I think of what is natural, I think to myself, well, I have these these kinds of discussions with my wife all the time. This drug that the pharmaceutical company is coming up with, which many people would consider to be unnatural, looked at from the perspective of a chemist, an organic chemist, or perhaps even an inorganic chemist, it's all part of the chemical world, and there's no clear distinction between what is natural or what is unnatural. Similarly, if we start looking within the biological world and we start looking at DNA, as it were, as uh, as, as building blocks that can be manipulated, then a vaccine which consists of, of particular aspects of that, it's very difficult to objectively or rigorously distinguish between what is natural and what is unnatural. I guess, let let me put it another way. What I'm I'm groping for is to say that in my view, the very notion of what is natural is itself dependent on our level of knowledge, our level of education. Is that something that you would concur with or disagree with?
0: I would subscribe to that view, but I don't think that it has been the intuitive view for most of the world's cultures, for most of the world's history. I think the natural has been an abbreviation for what happens most of the time in most people's experience. So, we often use the term natural in a very extended sense, by which we mean not something which is part of the realm of natural laws and events, but rather what we expect to happen on the basis of previous experience. So our understanding of nature and the natural is not so much causal as it would be in a scientific context, as it is phenomenological, which is even if we don't know the causes of why the sun rises and sets, we expect it to do so on a completely predictable basis. And for most of the world's history, the pharmacopoeia has also been entirely phenomenological. Right. We don't know why it is that, for example, a certain plant should cure headaches um, or, lower, or a certain bark should lower fevers. It just happens to be the case. So, I think that's the level at which natural operates to cement both expectations about regularities in the natural world, but also regularities in the moral world. We have views about how it's natural for human beings to respond to certain situations. And if they disrupt those expectations, we are both surprised, as we would be if a natural regularity was disrupted, but we're also often offended because we feel that a moral expectation has been offended.
1: Right. Let me pick up on what you said about the the bark that has healing properties. We may not have a detailed mechanistic understanding of what's actually going on, uh, and that, that opens up a whole other kettle of fish that I'd like to get back to later on. But we're used to this idea that certain things in the natural world, or certain things in our experience, have certain effects. And I guess... The, the fuzzy line for me is this idea of, of our, our expectations. Now, granted, from a historical perspective, I'm, I'm talking about a very, 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 very short time period. There's a fuzzy line between what is natural, especially when pharmacological solutions or medicines are very often just encapsulations of those specific processes, and in the natural, natural world where you go and you get a piece of tree bark or, or, or what have you it seems to me that's a point of ambiguity, this idea of what is natural and what is not natural, what is technologically made and what is not technologically made. And where I'm going with all of this, the reason I'm trying to emphasize this is it seems to me that the people who are, for example, resisting taking vaccines very often invoke Aspects of that sort of argument as well. Well, this is not a natural process. This is not something which, which is according to, to nature, and therefore it is unnatural, and therefore it is something not to be taken. That's not their only concern, and I want to get into to other concerns as well. But it, it seems like it's a two-step process. One is to say, well, hey, when we're actually deciding what is natural and what is not natural, it's not as clear-cut as we might like to believe. <laughs> By my example of a pill and pharmacology and so forth. And that's a hard line to decide, especially when our experiences are now littered with modern technology and ways of manipulating basic building blocks of nature. And then the, the, the second idea is that there is a moral consequence of that, insofar as people will highlight naturality or unnaturalness as a justification for not undergoing a specific action which is somewhat problematic because the line is so fuzzy. Do you see where I'm, where I'm see, going with I do this? see. I do see,
0: yeah. So let me, let me answer in two parts. The first part is about the vaccinations themselves and that kind of resistance to the vaccination, because I think it's an excellent illustration of your point of how blurred the line is or non-existent the line is. So there is a strain of thinking amongst those people who resist vaccination which emphasizes instead homeopathic medicine. And the idea behind homeopathic medicine is that you give a very tiny dose of what you think is the cause of the ailment and that that somehow will cure or at least um, alleviate some of the symptoms of the ailment. This is, of course, the idea behind a vaccine. And it's also frankly, the idea behind natural immunity, except that natural immunity is a much cruder and more dangerous way to become immune to some kind of microbe. So the processes are identical. And the only difference is that the creation of um, the vaccine is behind closed doors in a laboratory to which most people don't have access. And it's administered in a way that most people find uncomfortable um, and unusual, namely through a syringe. I really wonder what would happen if vaccines, if this happened with the SOC vaccine, the polio vaccine, when we switched to the Sabine vaccine. I can remember very well because I was a child at the time, and like many children, was afraid of shots. How delighted I was that I could get this vaccination through a sugar cube, which I swallowed. Hmm. There was no causal difference in the effective agent of those two vaccinations. But the second form of administration, because it was more familiar, ergo more natural, was literally and figuratively much easier to swallow. So that's the first part of the answer, which is I think what is going on here cannot just be a view about what the causal processes are involved. I think it must be tied up with a great deal of suspicion about the pharmaceutical industry and the invisibility and at least opacity of the processes of manufacture. So that's, that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is to try to understand why anybody would want to prefer what they believe to be natural remedies over pharmaceutical remedies. And I think The intuition there is one that has a certain amount of evolutionary support, only a certain amount, unfortunately, which is that the species must have, over the course of the million years of its evolution, encountered many, many microbes and somehow dealt with them, and that therefore it is probably in a position to do so once again in this case. Unfortunately, as the fate of many clean living villages in the Alps with many people who have resisted the vaccines shows, this is not the case with a virus which no human immune system has previous acquaintance with. But it's not an entirely irrational intuition um, so that... Faced with the choice between people being at least partially rational and totally irrational, I would prefer the partially rational interpretation.
1: Sure. Um, uh, But (laughs) so I I hear you. But it, it makes me think of something else with respect to this idea of natural and unnatural, which is to say, it seems to me there's a distinction between the species surviving, and individuals surviving. So one could argue, and I suppose an evolutionary biologist would argue, that it's entirely rational for large numbers of a given species to be wiped out over the course of history through all sorts of events, through geological events, changing habitat, plagues, uh, what have you. And so it is true that on the whole, any species that would have survived such exposure over long time periods in a natural environment would develop mechanisms to be able to to last. But that doesn't preclude the possibility that in so doing, huge numbers, hugely unacceptable numbers by our moral framework of, of that society would not make it. So I guess what I'm saying is, It seems to be that you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want to invoke an evolutionary biological explanation saying, oh, well, our immune systems must be so robust that we've defended ourselves so well over such a long time period that I'm going to trust my immune system to be able to somehow come up with a solution to this problem. You have to then recognize at the same time, well, that might be true on the whole. But it certainly is not the case for individuals, many of which have died. You don't even have to invoke, you know, pathogens that leap from bats to humans or anything like that, or or, or new pathogens. You just have to look at plagues throughout human history. I mean, you go back to to 14th century Florence and two thirds of the city was wiped out.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. No, I certainly see your point. And it does highlight that you have to add at least one additional premise to my semi-rational reconstruction of what might be going on in people's minds. And that is that you've won the lottery. Right. So you have to believe that you are one of the fortunate few who, by the genetic shuffle of the deck, has the right constitution to weather this particular plague. Now. It's interesting to think about the probabilities of this. You're right about the plague of 1348. We don't have really hard statistics on this, but the best estimates are that it wiped out between 40 to 60% of the population of Europe when it was raging. This pandemic is nothing like that plague. The estimates vary from country to country and within each country from um, demographic group to demographic group. But it seems to be ranging between a one and at most three percent mortality, especially if you take into account ages. And the interesting question for me is why we now consider this to be a morally unacceptable mortality rate. I personally believe it is a morally unacceptable mortality rate, but as a historian, I know that far higher rates of maternal and infant mortality were tolerated as, that word again, natural in the 19th century without exciting anything like indignation or outrage, only only sadness and regret. So there has been, first, a moral transformation in the level of acceptability, and secondly, some very Interesting, if not entirely coherent, thinking about playing Russian roulette with your immune system. So I think there's a real difference, or at least I think there would be a real difference, if this pandemic were like the smallpox epidemic of the 18th century, which was estimated to, at its peak, to have killed one out of every seven people in large cities like Amsterdam or Paris. I think if you thought your odds were one in seven, we would hear a great deal less about um, the unnaturalness of vaccinations or in the case of the 18th century, inoculations. Yeah. But I think the probabilities are just small enough that people can pretend to themselves that somehow when they spin the barrel of the revolver, it's going to come up blank.
1: Yeah. There are two things that I think of As you say that, the shifting goalposts of what we consider to be naturally acceptable or naturally reasonable in terms of mortality rates. The first is that we have a a remarkable ability, it seems, to compartmentalize, certainly in in the wealthy world. And that is that while we can say this is an unacceptable level of mortality for our societies we can simultaneously look to the developing world and look to the diseases that are ravaging areas of the developing world, many of which can be reasonably treated or at least potentially treated. And that does not seem in normal times to be morally egregious. So there seems to be an element of duplicity there in our invocation of natural mortality. And the second thing that I think about is people look, it seems to me, to naturalness and they often impose their own particular orientation. So, And, and again, you, you mentioned this in the book, and of course, you're very well aware of this, that the business of how you derive what is natural, what is acceptable, your moral norms from the natural world is hardly one-to-one, and it's hardly obvious. And to some extent, it depends on your predilections going in. And so what I think about in particular is... When many people talk about evolution or when they look to the animal world, they invoke these ideas of survival of the fittest and only the strong survive and and this notion that uh, of being able to condone killing off of the weak and so forth. Rarely do they look at examples in nature that are much more communitarian, or at least those people certainly rarely look, they don't look at at. The insect world. They don't look at termites, they don't look at bees, they don't look at social groups, they don't look at this idea of how it's essential for the good of the overall organism or society to be acting in a particular way. And I'm mentioning this because there's, of course, another component of justifying your actions on a moral level to taking or not taking a vaccine, which is to say... It's not just about you and whether you're in a lottery and whether your immune system will survive. There's another component to the extent that uh, even if you're okay by not being vaccinated, you in all likelihood, at least statistically, will be doing more harm than good to your fellow citizens.
0: Right. I mean, I think the problem with the strategy of appealing to nature to support your point is that for every example from natural history that you can invoke, I can invoke one to the contrary. Exactly. So you (laughs) might invoke the monogamy of swans to argue for uh, monogamous marriages, and I will simply adduce the promiscuity of bonobos, um, each as natural as the other. This is a fool's game. Nobody's going to win at at this game. And the the only puzzle is why it's gone on for so long, given that it's a rhetorical stalemate. In terms, though, of the question, which I think is not so much a question about the natural as it is about the moral, that this is not an individual decision, this is a collective decision, because there are collective consequences, it is a mystery to me. And here, it really makes a difference, I think, as to which country you're in. So, as you know, I'm, I'm based in Berlin, Germany. But I spend, I'm American, I spent a great deal of time in the States, I've just come back from spending four months in North Carolina in the US.
1: Just to interject for one second, only, only an American or at least somebody who imagines herself talking to Americans, and I'm, this is going to come across being very sanctimonious, would say Berlin, Germany, because anyone else in the world would say Berlin.
0: Well, every time I type in Berlin to Google, it says Berlin, Pennsylvania. Do you mean Berlin, Pennsylvania? So, <laughs> so I've, become, I've become very um, uh, painstaking about which Berlin I mean. So it's, back to so it's not a condescending statement about the parochialism of our countrymen. It's really about Google's parochialism. So, so anyhow, I'm very struck by the difference. So in the United States, this is really framed as a question of individual freedom and as a libertarian issue. And it becomes a classic issue of the degree to which individual liberties may be infringed upon in the name of collective solidarity. It's completely reversed in Germany. There certainly are libertarians in Germany, but the resistance does not usually come from the libertarian wing. So the libertarian party Which is now part of the ruling coalition, the Free Democratic Party, is all for vaccines. Indeed, they have come very close to arguing for a vaccine mandate, not quite over that line, but they're coming very close. This is unthinkable for their American libertarian counterparts. And I think this is not because there's some deep rooted difference between the American and the German traditions, but rather that in recent years, The sphere of individual agency and, I just say, egoism in the United States has expanded. This started, I think, in the 1980s in the Reagan years. And I can remember vividly the moment when this crystallized for me, which was when people know... It used to be the case that when people would describe their motives, for example, my students describing their motives... For going to medical school, at least their public motives were altruistic motives about wanting to help humanity. Those motives did not disappear, and I don't think this is insincere on their part. But in addition, they were completely unself conscious about also adducing self interested motives like earning a very large salary and leading a very comfortable life, which meant that motives of self interest had become normalized. As acceptable, not just explanations, but justifications for one's behavior. In that framework, you have the kind of discussion which is going on in the United States, which somehow frames the decision as to whether or not to get a vaccination as a purely individual vaccination and sees it as a trade off between individual liberties and the collectivity, which is really a quite alien framing for other countries.
1: So I'd like to understand why that is. I'm not sure you can tell me. If you have a quick explanation for, for why America is so completely different than anywhere else, I'd love to hear it.
0: <laughs> I don't have an explanation in toto. I have only a very local explanation, and it is unfortunately parochial because I teach at the University of Chicago, which is, I do think that a certain school of social science which is at root an economic school of social science which made self-interest the basis for an entire framework of explanation and moreover deified the workings of self-interest in the allegedly free market had a great deal to do with this
1: yeah well uh, for all those academics that are frustrated that they don't have sufficient amounts of public impact. Be careful what you ask for, I suppose. Anyway, I'd like to move on to the question of scientific literacy. So you're a historian of science. You also, I don't know if you go by that title officially, but you strike me as, uh, as a philosopher as well, or at least somebody who is very philosophically aware and astute. Would it be reasonable to say that you are a historian of science with a significant amount of philosophical understanding and philosophical motivation. Would that be a fair way of portraying you?
0: Certainly philosophical motivations. I, I think that the professional philosophers would disavow me because I wallow in the concrete. Um, but, <laughs> but it's true that almost, almost all of the questions I ask to history are philosophically informed. I'm very indebted to the philosophers.
2: slash
1: NBN50 to get 50% off. So let me turn to this question of scientific literacy, because that's something that one hears thrown around a lot these days. And many people are of the view that the major impediment that we face everywhere, all over the world, or at least certainly in the wealthy world, to moving on as rapidly as possible from this current predicament that we find ourselves in is the dearth of scientific literacy, that the general public is not as literate and as aware of both the facts and the process of science as they should be. And were we somehow able to successfully address that and live in a world where the vast majority of people would have a much higher degree of scientific literacy, then we'd all be in much better shape. So my first question is, would you subscribe to that notion? And then my second question is, well, what do we really mean by scientific literacy anyway?
0: So before we start on that topic, Howard, may I just go back to a point that you raised about the natural and the moral, because I thought it was such an important point, which is the degree to which we are callously indifferent to the ravages of diseases in other parts of the world, which exact a much higher toll in mortality than the current pandemic has. And I think that's, that's a fundamental point. And what it brings up to me, simply to put a capstone to our discussion about the natural and the moral, is what it takes to move something in from the category of this is just the way of the world, this is just the way things are, A sense of indignation and outrage. And that has happened with infant and maternal mortality. It took a very long time, but it happened. And it's beginning to happen also, even with natural disasters like earthquakes. The fact that an earthquake of, let us say, six or seven on the Richter scale will cause 10 times as much damage in Turkey as it does in Los Angeles now makes this a matter of human responsibility as well as of natural catastrophe. And I think that that's a really electrified boundary there, which is when you can make the role of human agency so evident that there's no longer any escape from human responsibility. And that means shifting a misfortune from the category of shrugging one's shoulders, it's alas, the way of the world, to saying we could do something about this if we wanted it. Yeah. And that seems to me to be going on everywhere at the moment. It's going on most obviously in environmentalism, but it's also going on in medicine. It's going on in disaster preparedness, for example, the new dams which have been erected in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. We're in a moment in which the metaphysical seismic plates are shifting in our heads about what is natural and what is moral. And I, I, I think your, your point illustrates that beautifully, and I just wanted to underscore that. So scientific literacy. I'm in favor of both kinds of scientific literacy. One of them is simply telling people more about the facts of the matter, but I'm even more in favor of telling people more about scientific process. I think that confidence in science has suffered enormously during the pandemic for reasons which were entirely avoidable. And the main reason is that it seemed as if what was scientific truth today was scientific error tomorrow, so that people came to think of this as the same kind of weather-vain opinion, as the latest political dictum. And I think that represents a really fundamental misunderstanding about the processes of science and to some extent also the status of scientific facts. Scientists have been complicit in this, but even more so science journalists have been complicit in this. So that instead of presenting current scientific consensus as to the best of our knowledge, It has been presented as if it were a platonic or theological truth, that is, an eternal truth. A moment's reflection would show that that's incompatible with any idea of scientific progress. And yet somehow, again and again, the results of the moment are presented as if they were the results of the ages. And I think, first of all, the scientists themselves are acutely conscious of the uncertainty which surrounds their results and indeed have a very refined way of talking about it in terms of error bars and confidence intervals. All of that is completely erased in science journalism and the communication of results. And secondly, it obscures the difference between the different status of scientific results. There are results which have been confirmed over and over and over again by the most diverse tests. And then there was the results which are the results of the latest epidemiological or laboratory study, which are the results of one study, however well or badly conducted. The fact that there's no understanding and no help with understanding the spectrum of confirmation has led to an enormous amount of avoidable confusion on the part of even the most receptive public, that is a public that is inclined rather to trust science rather than than not. So I think that there's an enormous amount that has to be done in terms of creating that kind of scientific literacy. Okay.
1: I have a theory. So let me bounce some ideas off you and get your sense as to what's going on and why. One of the things that you said that stuck with me is that there's little motivation to correct this misperception. So my theory is that, yes, absolutely, I, I, I 100% concurred that most people are extremely misguided when it comes to how science works in the process of science and the recognition of uncertainty and the distinction of uh, what is a well-established consensus and what is not. And I ascribe a principal amount of blame to this for the media. So here's my theory. My theory is that the media operates on this idea, on this metric, uh, if you will, of two sides to every story. They operate on a politicized framework constantly. And to a large extent, this actually makes sense. Because if you're reporting on what a political leader of party A said, then you know that he is saying something which is or she is saying something which is necessarily self-serving to the interests of party A and that the people of party B will say something divergently different and that you can't expect some objective, reasonable consensus to come from any one individual and that you have to actually... Uh, You have to take a uh, broad-based view and make sure uh, that for every position, you engage with people who have a contrary position. And that's the framework in which they live and they work. And I don't think one has to be a conspiracy theorist to agree with this. I think there are rather more sinister factors going on that have led to an incredible amount of divisiveness in many societies and most conspicuously the American society, where it's not just a question of operating on some unbiased politically oriented framework, but rather there are definite incentives and rewards for doing so that are aligned to political interest groups and so forth and so on. But that seems to be a, a, a fact. That seems to be a way that that world operates, for better or worse. And the claim is, or my claim is, that that's not actually the way that science works. That while it's true that there are communities of scientists who disagree, there's obviously this, that's integral to the process of science, One can make objective distinctions between what has been an established consensus, which doesn't always mean that it's completely right 100% of the time history, as I'm sure I don't have to tell you, will demonstrate that that's not the case. But nonetheless, it doesn't work according to that paradigm. It doesn't work according to that framework. It works by identifying openly and transparently what we know and what we don't know. And while there are, there's a lot of bluster and a lot of opinion and a lot of grandstanding as there is in any activity where many human beings are engaged, one can, with a, just a tiny amount of work, be able to assess what is objectively established consensus or as close to reasonable consensus as you can get from various different scientific uh, issues and what is not. And so I think about things like Anthropocentric climate change, for example. I mean, you, you only have to look from the beginnings, go back to the 1960s and the 1970s, and there was a tremendous amount of divergence and debate, and people were arguing about what was really going on, and maybe the temperatures weren't increasing at a statistically significant rate, or maybe it had to do with solar radiation and cycles, and maybe it had to do with this, and maybe it had to do with that. You fast forward 40 or 50 years, and it's patently obvious, it's completely apolitical, that the people who are specialists in this area have come to a reasonable amount of consensus about what's actually happening. And so to, to portray it as just one team and the other team, and there are two sides to every story, is a deep, deep misrepresentation of the process of what is actually happening. And you have the same sorts of things with biomedical issues and health issues, and the effectiveness of a vaccine or, or what have you, to portray this as something where you have two equally valid, equally representational, equally meaningful points of view is just flat out wrong. And I think that is something which a huge proportion of non-scientists falsely associate with the scientific process, they assume that it is somehow akin to the political process and their assumptions are filtered by the media that only looks at things through that framework. Do you think that's reasonable or do you think that there's uh, something deeply amiss with that?
0: I I think it's perhaps part of the problem, but I would have several caveats. First of all, unfortunately, um, there have been some scientists who have been not above using the media for their own purposes in your own example of anthropogenic climate change is, alas, one of them. I'm thinking here of the work of Naomi Oreskes, who pointed out that by the 90s, the 1990s, there was about a 95% consensus amongst scientists who specialized in this area that there was such a thing as anthropogenic climate change. But it was possible for 5%, not coincidentally in the pay of the oil companies, to take up a great deal of media time exactly on the principle you describe of if there's one side of the story then we must balance it with the other side of the story no matter where the preponderance of both consensus and evidence lies to deliberately muddle the issue and to postpone the inevitable for as long as possible so in that case i think a conspiracy has actually been proven on the part of these scientists there was um, opportunity and there was motive and they exploited it but i think it would be naive to say that scientists somehow amicably decide their own controversies. The history of science is, to a large extent, a history of controversies and sometimes extremely acrimonious polemics. It's a, this is a, an aside, but as for me as a historian of science, what's really interesting is how over the course of time, these polemics have actually become ever more civilized, the 17th century polemics make your hair stand on end in terms of their ad personum bitterness. So things have gradually gotten better, but they, it, they are still polemical. And you as a physicist probably have more
1: coffee break stories that you can relate on. on oh, this. it's worse than that. I, worse than that, I, I, I used to run a physics institute. And so I had a, a very, very intense experience of dealing with remarkably belligerent, close-minded, ad hominem-oriented individuals far more than I had ever wanted to have. If I implied anything to the contrary, then I, I misspoke. I'm certainly not advocating that scientists are generally... At least the ones that I'm familiar with are generally more amicable, generally fairer in disposition, generally friendlier and more tolerant, or even downright more reasonable than than non-scientists. I would I would never say anything okay. of the kind. I'm just saying <laughs> I'm just saying the process is is very right. very so
0: different. Let's concentrate on the process. Although I, I hope that none of these belligerent colleagues um, were so bellicose as to challenge you to a duel, which might have happened in the 17th century.
1: Um, oh, that's because they weren't
0: any good at duels. You I see. see, I think
1: if they had actually been gifted at duels, they certainly would have. <laughs>
0: um, uh, but, so the process is really interesting. And the question is, why is it that people who, after all, are people and moreover, who are extremely jealous of their professional reputations, would submit to the process which you describe, which is one in which they must submit themselves to a kind of communal decision about where the balance of the evidence lies. And that is a process which a very delicate ecosystem, which has evolved over centuries, always fragile, which is maintained by a certain sense of honor and a value instilled in graduate school through advanced training, that the good opinion of your peers counts for more than the good opinion of anybody else. Without that value, the whole system would crumble into a fistfight. And what is now in danger is the supremacy of that value. And that's why I would add caveats to your account. 90 to 95% of all science is now funded publicly in the world. If you look at the OECD figures, that means that scientists increasingly have an interest in the public presentation of their science in order for the science to continue, for their research to continue. This means that they are increasingly dependent on the science journalists to feature their research. That creates a tug of war with the approbation of their specialist peers Versus a flashy story in the New York Times Science Times on Tuesday. And this is a dynamic which you can witness in many countries. It's not just in the United States.
1: Sure,
0: That has created a dynamic which is a new dynamic. And which indeed, in addition to, in certain parts of the sciences, commercial incentives, thinking particularly of genetics and certain for- other forms of biotech, which also have for a very long time not just now but for a very long time run counter to other counterintuitive scientific values like open publication so that is destabilizing the system of scientific vetting of results from the inside not just from through the lens of the media
1: i want to talk a little bit about the history of science i wonder about our historical understanding and appreciation. We talk about scientific literacy in terms of the process of science, in terms of statistics, in terms of scientific consensus, testability, all the rest of that. But there's another level of understanding, or at least a parallel level of understanding about the history of science. And I think, personally, my view is that that can be very instructive, not only for laypeople, but for scientists themselves to have a deeper understanding of historical processes, previous beliefs, and so forth. To what extent do you think more people should be aware of the history of science? And if so, how should we go out of our way to to providing that understanding for them?
0: Yeah. So... As a historian of science, I I will not make no pretense of being nonpartisan here. (laughs) I do think it's important, but I think it's important in different ways for scientists and for non-scientists, with perhaps a shared Venn diagram intersection for both groups. But for the scientists, they are living in a situation of extraordinary uncertainty. So your own example about quantum gravity. Whether or not it will be possible to unite these two great fields, you know, of general relativity and quantum mechanics, as far as I know, is still an open question. And it's in some ways an existential question for physicists, you know, that these great theories, both of which have extraordinary results to their names. So they don't know how the story is going to end. That is their actual day-lived reality. And yet all the history that is told to them in their textbooks and also by way of anecdote is teleological. That is, at first we knew nothing, and then there was this result, and then there was that result, and then finally light dawned, it crystallized into the answer, and we are where we are now. And that way of narrating the history is so incongruous with one's lived experience that one can understand why the scientists themselves tend to minimize the role of uncertainty in their own researches, even if they're not nudged in that direction by the science journalists. And moreover, they're in a period of extraordinary acceleration of scientific results and of specialization. And therefore, they've lost the overview about why are we studying the things we are studying now? What would be the alternatives? And those are two things both to uproot the narrative of teleology and to give a more panoramic view of why we study what we're studying now, yeah. that the history of science could be of use to to scientists. For non-scientists, it can be of use because it can separate out three timelines of science. So you could imagine this um, as a metronome, maybe. So. At the level we're most familiar with, let's call it the allegretto level, there are the weekly, in this case, daily, hourly results from science and nature. You know, the latest empirical results, you know, imagine cover after cover after cover of major scientific journals. This is going really, as I say, at prestissimo rate. But then there's a much slower rate of our frameworks of understanding. And general relativity might be one example. Um, the evolutionary synthesis of the post-war might be another, which for a long time are fairly stable and encompass a quite large number of empirical results. They're not eternal, but they are quite stable for at least decades, sometimes for centuries. Let's call this the Andante level. And then there is a kind of Lento level at the very bottom, so the bedrock level, where there are novelties In the 17th century, the controlled experiment was a novelty. In the 20th century, computer simulations was a novelty in terms of a new form of empiricism, the statistical survey in the 19th century. But once they're established, they become the basso continuo to continue in a musical vein of the sciences. They are not lost. So that there is a creative but then durable level at the bottom of these forms. And perhaps we could consider certain values, like objectivity, to be part of that level once established as values. But then there are these other levels, and it's really important to specify what level we are talking about, because there are different degrees of evidence, and therefore of weight bearing, you, if you will, credentials, depending on what, which level you're at. No one should be surprised that at this allegretto level, things are changing all the time, We should be somewhat more surprised when things at the Andante level change. And it would be extremely surprising, and I must say, as a historian of science, really once in a century when we have a novelty, an eruption of novelty at this lowest
1: bedrock level. Yeah. As you're talking, two things struck me. You mentioned the way that science is often taught in this teleological, synoptic way, which is, of course, not what actually happened. And as you rightly say, Jars very deeply with our human experience. But I think it's worth emphasizing that it's not just that that gives people who later become scientists an erroneous way of going about doing their science, that they feel that it should happen in this particular way. And of course it doesn't, because that's not the way the world is. And moreover, that's not the way it actually happened. But there's, I think, another problematic aspect which associated with that, and I again cast my mind back to undergraduate days. I think of taking undergraduate quantum mechanics courses, for example. Now, as it happens, when I was taking undergraduate quantum mechanics, it was right before the dawn of quantum information theory. And I think there was a tremendous degree of intolerance to, uh, let's just say, more philosophical approaches and so forth for all sorts of other sociological reasons that we don't have to go into. But the point that I I, I wanted to make is that there was a non-trivial segment of undergraduates who when presented with, quite frankly, deeply befuddling material in this teleological synoptic, what I might call airbrushed way, said to themselves, this jars so deeply with what I would have imagined that they just left science altogether. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it doesn't have anything to do with, you don't even have to invoke the weirdness of the quantum world. You can look at any particular example. When you're faced with something which is put together in such an airbrushed way, If you're a reasonably, let's just say non-megalomaniacally oriented individual, you would certainly be excused for concluding, well, there's no way I could possibly imagine all of this happening, and therefore I should go off into another field entirely. Hmm. So I I think it has it has other sociological effects.
0: Right. No, I, I take your point about that. I wonder, do you think that another way of presenting the history of science to scientists in a more personal vein? Might be, this was an attempted by Thomas Kuhn and a group from the American Institute of Physics in the 1960s and 70s, which was to do interviews with physicists. And I think the project faltered because Kuhn, in particular, had very fixed ideas of what he wanted to find and directed his interviews accordingly. But the idea isn't a bad one in and of itself, which is to let people reminisce about their own careers. And I think, even though, as a historian of science, I have a kind of defamation professionnelle about biography and autobiography because of the obvious distortions, I think in terms of capturing the sense of perplexity, the alternation of exhilaration and disappointment, the sense of intense competition, but also of cooperation, that these personal memoirs can be enormously useful also because of their variability. Mm -hmm. That is, I'll bet if you had a dozen scientific lives, I listened to a BBC broadcast, which is, you know, the Life Scientific, which I quite enjoy. They're they're a bit tailored for for my taste, but still they're extremely revealing. And they're very, very different, these lives. And the people's backgrounds are very different. And First of all, the the sheer variability of the types of people who become successful scientists and also their recollection of what it actually was like at the moment, however befogged by the palimpsest of all memories. I wouldn't take it to be a substitute for archival history, but as a as an antidote for textbook history, I think it might be really useful for the kind of situation you're describing in the classroom.
1: Yeah. One more question. You talked earlier about indignation being a necessary component of moral action, the sense of how can this possibly be whether you want to Ban certain activities, or whether you think it's vital to embark on a political program that addresses certain needs, or, or or what have you. Do you think that there has been a sufficient amount of indignation writ large as a result of this pandemic? Has it been directed in the right particular directions? Has it been harnessed? It's a, it's a very vague and difficult question to answer, and perhaps you should just answer a different one. But anyway. Uh, I'll ask you now that I'm rambling on, how might you assess the indignation associated with the last two years?
0: Mm, You know, it's a difficult question to answer because in a way, there's a level of indignation weariness. That is, because indignation is such an effective motivator, second only to fear, it's ruthlessly exploited, especially in social media. And that is not necessarily a healthy phenomenon. So I'm not sure I want to pour more oil upon any particular fire. But my answer is the one I think which is many people's answer, which is it's been, in a way, a kind of test for not only the strength of national health systems, it certainly has been that, but also for societies. degree to which a society can pull itself together in an emergency and there's been a great deal of perfectly justified indignation particularly in the United States about the shambles of a health system which we have and which was so ill-equipped to deal with a pandemic but perhaps there's not been sufficient indignation about a society which unlike many other societies, could not rally together to face a common emergency. But that's the, that's the statement of a citizen. That's not the statement of a historian of science.
1: That's a great point to end on. I'd like to thank you, Rain, very much for your time and participating in this. And I had a wonderful time talking to you.
0: Thank you. It was a great pleasure.
1: I hope you enjoyed this Pandemic Perspectives podcast. Once again, our Pandemic Perspectives documentary, released in early March 2022, is available for rent or purchase through the Ideas Roadshow app. While the accompanying book, Pandemic Perspectives: A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, is available in print and ebook through all major book distributors and an audiobook on the Ideas Roadshow app. See ideasroadshow.com for more details.